Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben. I am the pastor here at Resurrection Church. It's great to be online with you this morning on this Mother's Day Sunday. Uh, we are preaching uh, through the Old Testament, not through the whole Old Testament, but in the book of Genesis, we're preaching through the story of Abram, uh, as he's known at this point. It's, it's, the, it's the life of faith. It has its ups, it has its downs. But as we learn in the, in the letter to the Romans, Abram is the father of all of us who believe. So if we are a person who's trying to believe, if we are a person who does believe, there's something here in the story of Abram that will be helpful, helpful to us as we consider sort of what it looks like and how God works and, and, and how he moves. And so we are in Genesis chapter 14 this morning. Now, I'm, I'm going to read it for you in just a second. What you're going to notice is the first 11 verses uh, have an unbelievable amount of names and places that are very, very difficult to pronounce. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it fast and confidently, and you can just pretend like I'm getting all the names right, uh, but I don't want to <laughs> linger on sound everything out. They're not even Hebrew names. They're other, you know, ancient names. So we're, we're, we're going to read the whole of chapter 14. Uh, you can follow along uh, with me. It says this, In the, day, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and the title king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came or went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of, brother of Eshcol and Aner. They were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. And this concludes the reading of God's word. We're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Perhaps you know the name Jim Collins. He's a business author. He's written a bunch of different books. But in, in one of his books, it's called How the Mighty Fall. What he does is he talks about how wildly successful companies get off track and these mighty companies fall. And one of the reasons they do so, he lists a bunch of different reasons. But one of the reasons is because of organizational hubris. Organizational hubris. And hubris is sort of a word for pride. Hubris often comes when we are successful. When things go well, we begin to feel entitled or that the success is, is inevitable. And we forget, is what Collins writes, what led to success in the first place. Instead, we become proud. We get puffed up with how wonderful we are. And this happens to great companies. And in his book, he talks about Kodak and how, how Kodak was this huge company, wildly successful. And they had the digital camera. They, they had invented it long before anyone else, but they concluded, we don't really need this. It's going to hurt our film business. And so they kind of threw it away. It, but, but it was this hubris. It, it took down what was a great company. Now, hubris can also happen in marriages, that great marriages can get off track because they lose what made them work in the first place. It can happen in families. It can happen in careers. It can happen, happen in all sorts of places. At some point, especially if you're extremely successful, there's a temptation to look around at, at where you've gotten to and, and be proud about it, to forget how you arrived there. And this is, of course, true spiritually. If we had arrived at a place where God is blessing us, if God is making us great, if God has given us success wherever we turn, we arrive at a place where we functionally forget about God. And we view our current position as basically assumed. We assume we, we've arrived where we are by uh, internal talent, by force of will, and, and we kind of forget about God in our hubris. In Genesis 14, Abram's nephew Lot, he gets himself into trouble. And then Abram comes to his rescue. And at the, the, the sort of mysterious passage at the end of this chapter, Abram has a choice. But really what's happened is he's experienced considerable success and two kings come to him, and they kind of hold out different understandings of what has happened and what should come next. And Abram's going to make important choices about humility and hubris that will show us something essential about the life of faith. So let's, let's take this text in three parts. First, I'm going to speak about Lot's folly. Lot's folly. Second, about Abram's response. And then third, about Abram's choice. Now, imagine you picked up a scrap of paper, uh, just a plain font, no markings, and it had verses 1 through 11 of this passage. Well, you would probably conclude that you're reading just a history book from the ancient Near East because there are, are kings and there are places that feel very foreign to us, kind of confusing. Abram's not mentioned at all. Canaan is barely mentioned. So what I want to do is I want to give you a, a fly-by summary of the first 11 verses uh, because we're not going to linger on them too long. But essentially, at this point, the Middle East is made up of city-states. Think sort of like ancient Greece. Interspersed in the land, that's modern day, Israel, Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Turkey, you know, all these, sort of that whole area. There were all these medium to large cities, and each of them had their own king. And over time, different cities would either fight with each other or ally with each other. And, and the whole thing was this cauldron, an ever-shifting sea of betrayals and rebellions and battles and alliances 
and nations were still a little ways off, you know, when nations composed of, of multiple cities or multiple tribes, uh, except for Egypt. And then, of course, maybe further away, in, you know, the Aztecs or China or whatever. They, they kind of had nations. But historically speaking, this is the Middle Bronze Age, and it's mostly these the kind of confined city-states. And as our text explains, there's this king named Cheddar Laomer and three of his allies, and they were from the area east of Israel. So think Iraq or Iran, maybe parts of Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, whatever. But these four kings and their areas, they have, a, they have an eastern alliance. And in the past, they defeated the kings of what was mostly southern Canaan, which are listed there in verse 2. And they'd imposed on the defeated kings a payment. You know, you have to pay us tribute every year, animals or gold or whatever. And for 12 years, they, they paid their dues. But in verse 4, they rebel. And it, because of the, the distance, it takes Cheddar Laomer and his friends a year to gather all their troops. And so in the 14th year, he marches back on Canaan and he conquers a bunch of new territories along the way. All the, all the cities and places listed in verse 5 through 7 are he's sort of conquering as he goes to Canaan, you know, swinging by to do some other fighting. But he eventually arrives in Canaan and Cheddar Laomer, his eastern coalition, they fight the five kings of southern Canaan in the valley of Sidim, which is just south of the Dead Sea. And actually, it was south of the Dead Sea. Now it's under the Dead Sea. You can't, you can't visit. It's 20 feet underwater now. Uh, the Dead Sea has sort of expanded. But there amongst the tar pits, these bitumen pits, Cheddar, Laomer, the Eastern Alliance, they defeat again the five kings of Canaan who either fall in the pits or are scattered to the hills. And the enemy, according to verse 11, takes all their possessions, all their provisions, all their people, and they turn around to go home. And so it's, again, it's this big win by Cheddar, Laomer, and friends. Now, why are these historical skirmishes included in the book of Genesis? Well, it's because of verse 12. <laughs> because Lot, Abram's nephew, was taken captive, along with his household. We aren't sure how many people are in his household, but all his possessions. And Abram and his extended family are kind of sucked into this little Middle Eastern conflict. Now, why did I call this first section Lot's Folly? Well, it's because there's a small detail in the text that tips us off that Lot is being foolish. Last week, if you, if you tuned in, Matthias explained how Lot had chosen the Jordan Valley. It was this well-watered, this green place, but there were all these cities full of evil people there. And, and his, the text, Genesis 13, ends by saying that Lot had moved his tents as far as Sodom. So he was kind of living just outside the city or whatever. But if you look at verse 12 of our passage, Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who, is, who was dwelling in Sodom. So whatever time has passed between chapter 13 and chapter 14, we're not really sure. But Lot is no longer near the wicked city. He's inside of it. And according to later stories, we learn he's got a house there. He lives there with his wife and his daughters. Uh, and he's actually called one of the leading citizens of Sodom. Essentially, Though we know from the New Testament that Lot was really bothered by all the sin in the city, he chose these men. He chose the king of Sodom as his friends. He went from living kind of, or from choosing the area to living near the city to living in the city. The book of Proverbs, one of the, one of the wisdom books in, in the scriptures, uh, one, of the, one of its proverbs, one of its sayings is this. Those who walk with the wise become wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. The companion of fools suffers harm. Lot is a companion of fools. <laughs> he, he joined up with people who were foolish. They rebelled against a stronger king, a stronger coalition. He got dragged into a battle, and now he's kidnapped, along with everything he has. Lot's foolishness has led to danger for him, of course, and as we will see in a moment, for Abram. 
But stepping back slightly, what I want you to see is the life of faith does depend quite a bit on whom you associate yourself with. Lot probably should have been with Abram, should have been living in tents, should have been worshiping the true God. Instead, he's, he's gotten very close to the wrong people and has now suffered harm. You know, one of my worries as a pastor, I mean, especially during this, this COVID season, but even in general, is, is as I worry for those people who are isolated or for those who, ha- who have for close friends only foolish people. Now, a foolish person, according to the Bible, you're like, what does that mean? Um, it, it doesn't mean a stupid person. Uh, it doesn't mean someone with a low IQ. It means someone who lives as if there is no God. Now, that might be a non-Christian. They, they, lots of them live as if there is no God, of course. Um, but it might just as easily be a religious person who acts like a non-Christian. And I hope, by the way, if you are not a Christian and you're tuning in this morning, we're really glad to have you here. I, I don't want you to take offense at the Bible calling you a fool. Again, we, we don't mean you're stupid. We just mean that as Christians, we believe wisdom comes from acknowledging God as the king of everything. And so if you're living as if there is no God, that's sort of out of accord with, you know, the wisdom of the universe. But I do think, also, or also, I also think a religious person or someone who has vestiges of religious belief, maybe grew up in the church, but if they act as if God does not exist, they also pose a great danger to, to a faithful Christian. See, because a Christian understands that, on one hand, that their non-Christian friends are going to act and think differently from them. And you're kind of prepared for that. But it is confusing when a so-called Christian does things that are contrary to the scriptures. All this to say, you need to be careful who you cultivate as friends. You can and should befriend non-Christians. That's part of what it means to love your neighbors. You can and should be a good friend to Christians who are struggling and wrestling with sin. But you also need to have friends to people in your life who will encourage you and build you up in your faith. And Lot was in Sodom all by himself. Uh, he, he had no one to encourage him in his faith. All he saw every day were people living as if there were no God, and it wore him down. And by the way, this, it's not about whether you live in the city or you live uh, in the country in tents or whatever. It, it's not about where you live. It's about whom you have as close friends. As a teenager, uh, I worked at a golf course for a summer, you know, cutting grass, fixing sand traps, you know, trying not to get hit by poor golfers, you know, hitting their balls into the bush at you or whatever. Uh, But while I worked at a golf course, it was while I was on a summer missions trip. And so I'd arrived at a city at West in Canada with a number of 25 or something other Christian university students. And we worked at regular jobs during the day. And then we would do outreach and Bible study and community meals and all sorts of things on the evenings and weekends. And so myself, actually, and two other people from the, from the missions trip got jobs at this golf course. And I remember that on the first day, I walked in and went, went to the men's change room to drop off my coat and put on my work boots. I can't remember exactly what I was doing. But I remember walking in and all around the men's change room were pictures taped up of semi-clothed and unclothed women. And now apparently what had happened, I, I learned soon after, is that many of the male employees had made a trip to Las Vegas and some of the you know, uh, the places there, and they brought back a number of pictures with them and, you know, taped them up all over the locker room. Now, as a 20-something young man, uh, struggling with lust, struggling with other similar issues, this was, this was difficult. They didn't want to take the pictures down. They didn't see it as a big deal. It was normal to them. It was enjoyable to them, but it was hard on my faith. And what really helped me that summer was my friend Tristan, who was on the missions trip with me. He also worked at the club, um, and, and we worked together to encourage each other. 
Not, not to linger in the change room, to, but to pray for our colleagues, to pray for our workplace. By his mere presence at the golf club, he was helpful to me. And I, I, I think, I hope, I was helpful to him to live a life of faith. You know, there are a lot of famous quotes about friendship. Like, you're the product of the five people you spend the most time with or whatever. I'm not sure how you prove any of those things. But the Bible does tell us over and over that the solitary, isolated believer often gets into trouble, often gets into trouble. And on the other hand, a Christian who has, who has solid friendships, solid relationships with people who support them and encourage them in their faith, you become like, I think it's Ecclesiastes says, like a rope with multiple strands. You're not easily broken. And this story, I think, on one level invites us to examine our lives, examine our friendships to see if we, like Lot, are being foolish. If we are living a life of faith all alone, well, it might be a sign we need to get into closer community, find some friends who can encourage us. So that's Lot's folly. He gets himself into trouble. He's kidnapped. Now we move to Abram's response. One of the escapees from the battle runs to find Abram. And actually, a little fun, little fun fact in Genesis here, for the first time, the word Hebrew is used to describe one of the Jewish people. We don't know how it came into use. We don't actually know what it means. There are a lot of different theories. You can you read the Wikipedia page or whatever. But eventually, this becomes an ethnic word used to describe the Jewish people. But anyways, it says here, Abram, the Hebrew, he's living by the oak trees in an area of Mamre, the Amorite, and his brother Eshcol and Aner. And these were allies of Abram. And in verse 14, as soon as Abram hears that Lot has been taken, he, he gets his trained men, and that refers to military training, by the way, some sort of little volunteer army or whatever, 318 of them, and they go after them, and they pursue the enemies all the way to the city of Dan. Now you're like, where's Dan? How far away is that? It's a long way. It's basically um, where Abram's living is sort of like mid-south, and he goes all the way to the north of Israel, um, uh, or, or Canaan at this point, I guess it's called. And this happens in one verse. This was likely a multi-day, even like a week, two weeks long pursuit. He's, it, it's a long time to chase these guys down. And he splits his force into two parts, or multiple parts. He attacks at night. He defeats them and then pursues them. It says north of Damascus into this place called Hobah. That's like Syria, even further north. You know, another couple days march or whatever. And in the process, all this fighting, he rescues Lot and all the possessions and all the people and all the stuff of the other kings of Canaan. A couple things to note here. First, this is actually an incredibly short description of the battle. <laughs> so uh, on first reading, you're like, oh, this chapter is about a battle. But the length of time the text gives to a days-long chase, a night sneak attack, which frankly, I want to know more about, uh, a further pursuit into a different area, and the recovery of a massive amount of plunder, like, it's two verses out of 23 or whatever it is. Two verses, which means the battle isn't the point. I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've ever read the story of where David fights Goliath, like actually, you know, read it in the Bible, the actual battle between David and Goliath is also like three verses long. It's, it's really, really short. The whole passage is like 54 verses, and David fights Goliath for three of them. Because the important point of that text was the lead up to the battle, and how Goliath taunted the people, and how Saul the king was a coward, and David was brave. That's the point. And similarly here, the, the battle isn't really the point. The important thing, I think, is the loyal love that Abram shows Lot. And then, of course, all the stuff that happens post-battle, which we'll do in part three. But try to get in Abram's shoes. So remember previously, if you, if you heard it last week, he let Lot choose the land for, for his animals. And Lot clearly chose the better land. 
excuse me, Lot foolishly goes and lives with sinful people who are going to lead him astray. He then gets himself into a losing battle and gets kidnapped. So, so far, last chapter or two, Lot's been selfish and foolish. At this point, Abram hears about it. He might have washed his hands saying, look, it's his fault. Lot made his bed. He can go sleep in it. Abram owes Lot nothing. He's done so much for him already. But when Lot's in danger, when Lot's foolishness puts everything at risk, Abram doesn't hesitate. He gathers his troops, and though in all likelihood was wildly outnumbered, he only has 318 guys, maybe some allies as well, but he pursues and attacks. He goes and he rescues his foolish nephew. It's loyal love shown from Abram to Lot. Now, there are lots of ways to distinguish between, you know, one kind of love from another. Because we use the word love to talk about how we feel about our mothers, but also, you know, how we feel about Doritos. And so we have to, we have to nuance love because it doesn't kind of cover, the word itself doesn't kind of cover uh, everything. So when I say loyal love, here, here's what I mean. I mean that Abram shows despite love, not because love. Despite love, not because love. I'll tell you the difference. Here's what because love sounds like. I love you, or uh, because, you, because you are beautiful, I love you. Or because you are smart, I love you. Or because you are rich, I love you. Because you have loved me, I loved you. Now, because love, it's sort of fine. It's, it's not wrong. But if it's all you have, it ends up being insufficient. And I'll tell you, here's the reason why. Life often strips away all of the becauses. At some point, we're not as beautiful as we once were. At some point, we, we lose our wealth. At some point, our, our minds decline. At some point, we may not be loved by another. At some point, we will not feel in love. Abram doesn't love Lot with because love. He loves him with despite love. Despite love. Here's what despite love sounds like. I have decided to love you. Therefore, I will love you despite your foolishness. I will love you despite the fact that you are mean to me. I will love you despite your sin. Despite love, that's actually the love we need to be enduring parents, to be faithful spouses, to be good friends, to be, to be good neighbors. Because love, it's not going to be enough to carry you through all the seasons of life. It's not strong enough. There aren't enough reasons. You're going to need despite love. Because eventually your nephew is going to do something foolish and you're going to have to chase him down. Abram loved Lot, even in his foolishness, at great risk to himself, because he loved him despite all his folly. Now, where did Abram get despite love? Where did Abram get the strength to risk himself for the sake of an endangered nephew? Well, he'd seen it. Abram had experienced it from God. Remember a couple weeks ago when they were in Egypt? Abram had been extremely foolish. There, he had been the one who, who, was, who was being silly and putting himself and his wife and his whole family in danger. God had loved him there. And God had loved him when he was a foreigner stuck in northern Syria. If you remember back to the very first sermon in this series. And God will love him. And next week you're going to see it. Despite all the foolishness and sin that is to come. See, Abram had been shown it. He'd experienced despite love from God. And that's why he can go and show it to Lot. Now, despite love, loyal love isn't all we see from Abram. We also see active faith. 
Again, if you remember last week, Matthias talked about how Abram relinquished his choice of land. Abram and Lot, they, were, they got too rich, had too many animals, they had to separate, and Abram said, Lot, you choose, whichever one you want. He, he relinquished his choice. And Matthias rightly said that this was a kind of passive faith, a refusal to assert his rights, and instead he just trusted that God would give him what he needed. It was a passive faith. But this week, passive faith is not what's required. Active faith is what's required. Abram doesn't wait for God to miraculously intervene. He heads out after Lot in trust that God will give him the victory and protect him. And I find the pairing of these two passages interesting. It feels a lot like the modern journey of faith. Sometimes we are called to waiting and watching and trusting. Passive faith. And other, other days, other, other times, we are called to, to action and crisp decision-making and strategic thinking and active faith. The hard part is to figure out which one you're on, <laughs> which one you should do now. We often don't get God whispering in our ear being like, you know, passive faith, active faith. Uh, and from what we can tell, Abram didn't get that in today's story either. God didn't say, hey, go after a lot. You know, it's worth it. Uh, Abram just knew that loyal love demanded action, and he just went. So friends, I'd invite you to carefully discern what kind of season you're in. Are you being called to purposeful waiting and trusting God? I mean, COVID has forced a lot of us into that kind of season, some kind of waiting season. But perhaps in some area of life, you're called to to active pursuit of some good thing. The secret here is you probably can't know on your own. You probably need to ask other people in your life to help you see what the right next step is, either waiting or, or pursuing, being passive or active. But let's move to part three, Abram's choice. And let's return to our story. A bunch of kings fought. Lot was foolish. Abram was loyal and brave. And everything got rescued. If you look at verse 17, as Abram returns south with the captives and the plunder, the first person to come out and meet him is not Melchizedek. It was the king of Sodom. And they meet, it says, in the valley of Shava, which is near Jerusalem. But even though the king of Sodom comes out first, he doesn't speak. Instead, the most, what I like to call the most mysterious man in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, he does a few things that to us, thousands of years later, with knowledge about Jesus, with knowledge about the New Testament, seem laden with meaning. Let me just give you, this is sort of like a, the fun part, uh, a, little, a little, few things that Melchizedek is and does here. First, the text calls him the king of Salem. Now, Salem might be a version of shalom, which means peace. So he might be, might be the king of peace, the prince of peace. But also, Salem is likely short for Jerusalem. Melchizedek is likely the king of Jerusalem. Okay, that's the first one. Secondly, he serves Abram and his men bread and wine. Now, to be fair, that was common food and common drink. And bread is sometimes a Hebrew slang for like, food, like for dinner or whatever. But nevertheless, bread and wine in Christianity, that's filled with meaning. And in communion, in the Lord's Supper, they become symbols, right, for the body and the blood of Jesus. Third, Melchizedek is not only a praying, praying, I just ran it together, not only a king, he's also a priest of God Most High. And this begins to sort of, you know, shake us a little bit. This is the only example in the Old Testament of a person who who is a priest and a king, when Israel gets formally started, when they come back to Canaan, you know, hundreds of years later, priest and king, they were different offices, different, different roles, different functions. Just like in Canada, you can't be the prime minister and the governor general, I don't think. Um, you, you can't be a priest and a king. They, they just, they do, they're doing different things. But here, Melchizedek is one. Not only that, but he says he's a priest of God Most High. 
Now, Melchizedek is not named as a priest of Yahweh. Um, Only Abram and his family up to this point know the more personal name of God. But it's clear from the ensuing conversation that Melchizedek serves the same God as Abram, even if he knows him sort of a little bit less personally. So this means Abram and his family, they are the chosen people. But God is not confined in his work in the world only to them. God's working in other people in other places, probably to prepare them for the worship of the one true God. And finally, at the end of verse 20, if you kind of skip past the blessing, we'll get back to it in a second. Abram gives him 10% of the plunder. Abram tithes. That's what tithe means, to give 10%. He tithes his plunder to Melchizedek. And the significance here is that Abram recognizes Melchizedek as his spiritual superior, as a true representative of God. This is the only time we hear about Melchizedek in, in the entire Old Testament. He never shows up again, <laughs> which is why he's so mysterious. But I can't let this opportunity go by without telling you that the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus exists in the order of Melchizedek. That Melchizedek and what that means is that Melchizedek was a kind of prototype for Jesus. That Jesus, too, would be a priest and a king. That Jesus would impart you know, the blessing of God to the people. That Jesus, too, would set a, a table of bread and wine for his people to feast at. And that Jesus, too, would receive our tithes and offerings as a way to honor him. It's kind of hard to know what Abram thought of Melchizedek. But to us, on the other side of the New Testament, on the other side of Jesus, these old stories, they, they explode with, with hints and allusions and, and little threads that if you pull on them, you can see Jesus clearly. And by the way, if you want to do a deeper dive on Melchizedek, you can go and read Hebrews chapter 7, you know, this afternoon, sometime this week. Uh, read that story alongside this one and see what the author of Hebrews is doing with this story of Melchizedek. But we haven't gotten to Abram's choice, so let's, let's go back to that. So Melchizedek speaks in verse 19. He blesses Abram, and he asks God most high to bless him. And Melchizedek honors God. He calls God the owner of everything and the one who delivered the enemies into Abram's hand. But then the king of Sodom elbows his way into the conversation. Just kind of out of nowhere, in verse 21, he makes an offer to Abram. He says, give me the people, give me the persons, but take, take the goods for yourself. Here's why I call it a choice. Because Abram, by these two kings, is being offered two accounts of the battle, two ideas of what happened, two potential outcomes. If Abram goes with Melchizedek, It means he believes, like Melchizedek said, that God owns everything. God won him the battle by delivering the enemies into his hand. All the stuff from the battle, it belongs to God, not to Abram. But if he goes with the king of Sodom's view, his offer, implicitly Abram believes that he, Abram, is the master of his own fate. He was brave and courageous and cunning. He won the battle through great strategy. And now he has a right to the people and the plunder. It's his. Do you see how these two kings offer different versions of reality? It's no different in our day. Now, you're likely not fighting night battles against Middle Eastern kings and then dividing the plunder, but but we still have different versions of reality. Let me explain. One way to view your life is to think, on, on the Melchizedek side, everything I have is a gift. All my intelligence, all my hard work, my family, my friends, my wealth, All of it comes from God. He owns everything, and therefore he should be praised and honored for that, and he can tell me then what to do with it. Alternately, one can believe, I am where I am because of what I've done. I deserve everything I've gotten, 
My family is great because I'm a good parent and a loving spouse. I'm religious because I worked hard at that. It's, it's me. It's mine. And I've simplified here to make a point. It's not as easy as that. And let me show you how insidious it can get, even for pastors. I'll give you a personal example. Here's one version of reality for a pastor. That's over on this side first. My church is what it is because I have worked hard. I'm a really good preacher. People really like me. Everything this church is, it's because I worked hard. I put in the time. It's mine. It's my church. Alternately, this church and the people are a great gift. What a thing God did. What a thing God is doing. I'm glad God used me. I'm glad I got to be part of it. But ultimately, none of it really belongs to me. As a pastor, I, I confess, I go back and forth between those extremes. What about you? You want to know how you can tell you're doing? You want a little diagnostic test to figure out where your heart is at? I'll give you one. Here's a, here's a little diagnostic test you can do. How does it feel to tithe? How does it feel to, to give 10% of everything away? And I'm not just talking uh, about your money, but you know, tithing on your time and, and your energy and everything else. And I'm not asking you if you tithe. You might tithe for a lot of reasons. You feel guilty, you feel disciplined, whatever. How does it feel to tithe? To a person over here who feels like everything is theirs, me, mine, it hurts to tithe. It feels really big because you're saying, it all belongs to me. I don't want to give any of it up. For a person over here who thinks it all belongs to God, I'm, I'm not saying tithing is easy. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe we do someday. If you're more mature than me, you can tell me if you get there. It's not easy, but it's understandable. Because in that case, you're like, well, I, actually, I get to keep a majority of what isn't really mine. I only have to give this part of it away. How does it feel to tithe? Well, where does our boy Abram land? Well, he tithes. He gives 10% to Melchizedek. But also, if you look at verses 20 through, 22 through 24, it tells the story of where Abram's heart is at. And Abram tells the king of Sodom, I don't want any, I don't want any of the plunder, not even a sandal strap. <laughs> I, I don't want to be made rich from my dealings with you. I just want enough food for my army and a share of plunder for my allies. In short, Abram chooses Melchizedek's explanation of the world. God is the owner. God gave the victory. The plunder, the victory, all of it, it was never mine to begin with. It was him, not me. And by making this choice, Abram is not only exemplary for our own life of faith, he also shows us what Jesus is like. From the same way as Abram, Jesus goes after people who are sin-sick and sore. People who through their own foolishness have pierced themselves with many griefs. People who are in the clutches of an enemy. And with loyal love, Jesus goes after us and fights. Not with a sword, not with a shield, but with his own body. And blood, and he wins a great victory, not through a sneak attack, but with a public humiliation of himself. He buys us back and gives his own life that all the captured lives might be spared. And then he sets a table for his ransom people in the wilderness. He offers them the bread of his flesh and the wine of his blood, that they might taste and see what he has done for them. And perhaps you have the same question for Jesus that we did about Abram. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he go through all of that? Well, it's because he took Melchizedek's explanation of the world. He said to God the Father, not my will, but yours. 
I will give up all the things I've rightly earned, all the things I have a right to. And in his dying and in his rising, Jesus becomes for us the great and true Abram and the great and true Melchizedek. The, the, the priest king who not only wins great victories on his people's behalf, but also blesses us on behalf of God Most High. He imparts the favor of the divine to us. So my friends, brothers, sisters, neighbors, whoever you are, if you find yourself this morning isolated or friendless or foolish, if you find yourself lacking courage, needing help, if you find your heart rebelling at the thought that the world is God's, not yours, then I would invite you anew for the, for the hundredth time to Jesus. Come to him. Have your heart refreshed and renewed and remade. My prayer is that Christ would rise in your hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to live the life of faith, uh, but we need to not just be like Abram, we need to be like Jesus. We need, we need to have his uh, image, we need to be, be fit into his image to become more like him, to have the kind of loyal love that, that he showed us. So would you remake us this morning? Remake us into people who love well, who are courageous in the face of difficulty, who are, who are wise when it comes to friendships. But we ask you to do this. We pray that at the end, if we do experience success, if we do experience your blessing, that we would honor you for it and not ourselves. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.